we are a nation of immigrants. And for me, like I am the American dream. I firm and I love this country. I absolutely love this country. And I firmly believe there is no better country than the country we live in today. Because somebody like me could not have risen up in a different country. And I, and I believe that. Welcome to the Climb Podcast, where wisdom flows from one generation to the next. In today's fast-paced world, we rarely pause to contemplate the intricacies that fuel success. Sit back, unwind, and immerse yourself in the art of storytelling, an age-old tradition that connects us through raw, authentic conversations. No topic is off-limits as we delve into the pivotal crossroads and defining moments that shape today's leader. The ascent is never easy. Welcome to The Climb. Welcome to The Climb. I'm your host, Michael Moore, and I could not be more excited about today's guest. I don't think I had to grovel, but I certainly had to be patient and give her time to agree to come on The Climb. Usually I start out with a big intro. We'll get to that, but I want to start out today's episode with just sort of a testimonial. And It's not often in life, especially when you're in a business of meeting people and creating relationships, that an interaction has the impact on your life that this one has had. But over a decade ago, I came busting into a classroom for the Fort Worth leadership and looking for a place to sit. Thank goodness there was an open seat next to Ana Alvarado, and I got the lucky seat. And I think at that moment, I knew that I was in the presence of greatness, of somebody that would have a profound impact on my life, be a lifelong friend, uh, be somebody that I could trust in. And we've gotten the opportunity to watch each other grow. And it's a beautiful relationship. And so thank you. Now you're going to make me cry. Thank you for joining. Well, I'm about to as well, because (laughs) this is, I'm serious about this. I'm so lucky that you're in my life and I'm glad that you're here. And this is going to be a wonderful story. And your story is one that is worth telling. So without stealing any of your thunder, let's start at the beginning, how you grew up. A big part of this podcast and my passion is bringing these stories out and talking about those defining moments, those character building moments in your life that really do frame who you are and how you think. And I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about that because I see it in your relationship with the people that you work with, with your kids, with your family, how important your relationship is with your mom. So let's kind of start back at the beginning. Little Anna, tell me about her and how you grew up. Great. Well, let's dive right into it. Why don't we? Um, No, Michael, thank you. I, I feel the same way about you. And I really have enjoyed our relationship and seeing each other grow throughout our careers and personal and professional lives. So it's a gift. Uh, to me as well. So thank you for your friendship and for that beautiful intro. So yeah, I you know I grew up in Central California between Fresno and Bakersfield. If anybody is familiar with that, it the San Joaquin Valley, the breadbasket of this country, where about maybe eighty percent of this country's produce is grown. Literally living on the labor camp, my parents were migrant workers from Mexico, and that's where they met at the labor camp. My mom and my dad have 10 years age difference. So my mom met my dad when she was very young, had me at around 16. So she was a very young mom, the oldest of four. Literally, my first job was picking grapes, probably, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years old. And I, I just remember just sort of life 
in the fields and being surrounded around all of that. And it really wasn't. And there's been a lot that happened. Like the first 12 years of my life, it, it was, you know, I've, I've seen just a lot that maybe kids growing up shouldn't have to see or experience. Right. But it wasn't until my 30s, I think, when I really appreciated that upbringing. And so even looking back at that, I had a very disadvantaged yet privileged upbringing. And but I, what I mean by that is, you know, I was privileged that my parents were migrant workers, right, which instilled in me that hard work, right? So super privileged I had, I experienced that. I was privileged that my mom was a teenage mom because I saw, hey, having a kid while being a kid is not fun, right? Great contraceptive, too, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was privileged that my parents didn't speak any English, so which forced me to master both languages and the adult and you know help them navigate certain circumstances yeah i was privileged and it's gonna sound weird that my dad was an addict and a felon because it taught me how not to be what not to do what path not to take so there's there's a lot of things like that that you know growing up i was bitter about and then you know again not until my 30s where i look back and i'm like wow had it not been for all of those things and you know having been saddled with firstborn the oldest teenage mom, dealing with addiction, dealing with drugs, dealing with all of that, I would not be sitting here talking to you today. What do you think it is about our 30s where that ability to start reflecting kicks in? Because I know for sure it didn't exist when I was in high school. It definitely didn't exist when I was in college. But in my 30s, I do remember that ability to kind of go, oh, that's why I am who I am, or that's a profound event that occurred in my life that at the time, especially if it's painful, I think our human instinct kicks in in a defense mechanism where it's just we're tunnel focused, we're going to survive, we're going to go until you kind of get through that. So help me unpack that a little bit around why in your 30s versus not knowing at the time that these experiences were molding and influencing who you've become. Gosh, you know what? That's a great question. And all I can even chalk that up to is we gain perspective. And I, I don't know for you, but for me, it was always just this sort of survival mode the entire time, wherever I was, right? And it's not until I think you're 30s when you've seen some, experienced some, maybe you start enjoying a little bit of success, whatever that looks like for you to step back. And you're like, wow, yeah, I did that. And then, you know, you look at certain circumstances and situations and, you know, there's some forks in the road where you're either going to go right or you're either going to go left. But because of maybe what you've experienced before, what we've experienced before, we, you know, we either know better, we recognize that, right? And able to appreciate that. I think it's just, it's a good time to reflect. And I think that only happens after you've been through some stuff mm-hmm. and after you can appreciate what you've been through and can recognize, all right, this is a, this is cool. This is a good thing. How did I get here? Right. No, I think that's good. But I think when it's that difficult and there are so many, you don't have tailwinds, it's all headwinds. You get to the end of it and either it's, it's beat you down so much or you just don't have that ability to step back and say, okay, no, that defined who I am. And that's why I am so strong. And that's why I am going to be successful. There's some switch in there that doesn't happen with most. It just beats them down. And then they can't 
elevate themselves to the next thing and say, no, 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 that made me stronger. Now I'm going to be successful. I'm motivated. I'm dedicated. You tend to follow what you see and what you know. So somewhere in there, even before you got reflective on it, you went, no, 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 not on my watch. Like I'm in control of this. I'm going to go to college. Like talk through that motivation. Yeah. So look, I think for me, it started really early and I like I couldn't pinpoint it to what it was, but it was just a feeling of this is not for me. Something about all of this is just not right. And I don't know what it is that I have to do, but that's not going to be me. Right. And I didn't know what it was, but I did know kind of what good looked like because of the teachers that I had. Right. So it's like, I'm going to try and emulate, wow, that person has a really nice home. Like I want to have a nice home or that person drives a nice car. Like I want to drive a nice car. Or that person takes vacations. Like I want to take vacation. So having just that feeling, but for me, really sort of crystallized and at the camp when Cesar Chavez and his team came and they were just educating the farm workers about just basic rights. And the gentleman that was talking, I didn't know who he was. He just happened to be a lawyer at the time. And then I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to be. I mean, he, you know, he was articulate and he knew stuff and he had all these experiences. And so I think then I realized all that is ambition. Right? And I think I was just, it's just something internally that I knew that I wanted to see more than I'd seen. I wanted to do more than I'd done. Like I wanted just more. I didn't know what it was, but that wasn't it. And so that for me was just a, just a ruthless determination to just improve whatever circumstances I was in at the moment. So you mentioned education. When you would go to school, what was that dynamic like? Because that sort of elementary school, middle school, getting into high school, like people are not very nice, especially if they can notice maybe a difference, right, in their life compared to your life. So was that an easy thing? Was it a hard? Yeah, Talk so about for that. me, okay, it was easy for me. Number one, because where I grew up, we were all sort of in the same boat. There were maybe a few families that, you know, you could tell were well off, right? Very noticeably. But even that whole school, that I mean, that to me was my refuge when everything else in my life was being chaotic. And I mean, like stuff with my dad and what was going on. School for me was such a refuge. And I doubled down on that. And I remember, too, when I doubled down on that, I think I was in fifth grade and Mrs. Pitt, I will never forget. She said, if whoever gets 100 on this U.S. geography test, I'm going to take you to Perko's. Right. And Perko's was this little cafe that I'd never been to in like the next little town in Porterville. But it was a fancy restaurant. I had never eaten in a fancy restaurant at all. I mean, I didn't we didn't just eat out. That just was not a thing. And so. Of course, I was going to get 100. I got 100 and I we go there and I thought it was the coolest thing. So that was the very first time that I correlated education to success. And I'm right. like, all right, this is where it's at. And I don't care what's happening. Like, I'm going to kick ass in school, right? My only mission is to do really, really well and just kind of emulate my teachers. Because if they took an interest in me, I was latching on. And whether or not they knew they were mentors, they were mentors to me, right? It was never anything, deep discussions or anything. It was like, hey... I just paid attention and I listened. I was a really good student. So for me, it was easy. Did anybody else make 100? Were you the only person that got to There was one other person that got 100. You had to share. I had to share. Yeah, yeah. But I got 100. (laughs) You know, it, it is amazing, whether it's one or two, how impactful a good teacher can be 
on just your whole attitude towards education and the way that you study and apply yourself and think long-term and embrace the suck of studying for this test. But good grades mean, and we talk about this all the time at home, the better your grades are, the better you do. And I could have a whole nother podcast on the ridiculousness of standardized tests, but the more, the better you do, the more options that there are, the worse you do, doesn't mean there's still not option, doesn't mean you're not going to go to college or do whatever you want to do next, but the doors just start closing without your ability to keep them open, right? That's right. So you figured that out pretty early. Yeah, I figured that was just the ticket to freedom, yeah. right? Whatever that looked like. It was going to be a hell of a lot better than what, you know, than maybe what the expectation was. Because to be quite frank, like there really wasn't high expectations, right? For anybody, for me or anybody kind of growing up in that area. It's most girls got pregnant and shacked up. Yeah. But again, just the expectations were low. It's just kind of how things were. And I was fortunate to have a lot of good cousins who pushed and a couple of older ones that went off to college. But, you know, for the most part, expectations were, weren't very high. But you were ready, willing and able to bust through all of that. So in high school, when you kind of saw probably as a freshman or a sophomore, you see graduation and you see where kids, you know, some kids are escaping, whatever you want to call it the ability to to upwardly change mm-hmm. their projection. When did you start zeroing in on, okay, like I've got to do whatever it takes to get into a good college and kind of that whole mindset of I'm also going to leave, you know, my core and my family and go do this. Like, how did you process yeah. that? So because I really was a good student, I did have the respect of some teachers and so they would say, you know, get good grades, which I understood. But then the pivotal moment for me was a, a program called Upward Bound. For those who aren't familiar, it's a science and math program across high schools that's designed to give disadvantaged kids an experience in the math and science field while living in a college setting. So for me, that was my junior year in high school that I got to experience that in at UCLA. And I went to that program and it com- like completely changed my life because it made going to college even a lot easier because they gave you all kinds of vouchers and they were free. But I also knew what it was to work in an office setting for the first time and what that felt like. And I'm like, this is great. Like, I'm on my way. I also knew that knowing heck I wanted to be in the aerospace industry. I think my internship was with TRW at the time. And I was like, yeah, this this is not for me. But it was really cool, right? Because I got that taste of what that life would be. So that, to me, was a pivotal moment within high school. And throughout high school, were your parents still part of the labor coming to that yeah. that experience no, that, exists they still they were still working the fields that was still very much part of yeah of life what before that though i'm right uh, into transition before high school my father was in prison for a while and we had to move to the bigger town and lived with with my grandma mm-hmm. and so that experience before then again just solidified the fact that yeah, i just early on you know Knowing that home was insecure, that food was insecure, that security was insecure, all of that just made me just be even more determined to be really well in high school, be visible and just kind of push through all that and move on. But you didn't have to change high schools during that. You were just moving. Yeah, just moved from, yeah from uh, the smaller labor camp into like this bigger town, which was Portoville. And so I ended up doing middle school in, in Portoville and then high school in Portoville until senior year, which I came to Fort Worth. 
And were you working alongside your mom during this? Like, obviously you had school, but mm -hmm. then after school, before school, did you have a, a job as well as yeah, so, part of this process? So because, so, I, so because, I mean, we're just there in the environment every few months or summer, I was always helping in, in the fields. And so I took advantage of that opportunity to also make some money and contribute. And then what we... But my other side gig and statute of limitations has long passed on this is <laughs> nice disclaimer. Having my dad sell pirated cassette tapes at the swap meets and selling the produce, leftover produce from the stuff that we did. So every Saturday that was my job. I we I got paid. Set up little tents in the swap meets or, you know, the and sold the cassette tapes and produce. Interesting. Yep. So Early on knowing, okay, money is important. Learning how to make money is important. Learning how to manage the money is important, right? So yeah, my entrepreneurial skills came from that. Street hustle. That little like bit. <laughs> the relationship there with with your dad, like... He passed away about, it'll be three okay. years in November. And yeah. But up until that time... Was there a relationship there? Was there some kind of reconciliation and understanding? So, How did that work? So there was a relationship, but, you know, and I, of course I love, I love my dad, but he, you just, you know, a lot of people don't know how to be parents yeah. and, you know, he just did the best that he could. And, you know, for a lot of years too, I was very resentful because of that. And then he ended up going to Mexico for several years and lived the rest of his life there. But uh, no, over the years, I, you know, made amends with that, you know, forgave him and understood. And at the end of the day, you look back and he was just doing the best he could. Yeah. So before we start talking about education, law school, and then your career, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just kind of go big picture geopolitical, just because of your experience and your knowledge and your passion for this topic. I just feel like the, the at least our country is getting more and more divided by the election cycle. And any economic scholar would tell you that a strong middle class is the fabric to any great nation. And that seems to be shrinking. Poverty's increasing. We've got these border crises that we're very familiar with because we live in the great state of Texas. I think the latest thing was putting up floating barriers to try to keep, I mean, it. so knowing what you know and how you grew up, like, if you were in charge, which quite frankly, you should be, like, how do we go about fixing the fact that we're a, a nation of immigrants, always have been, we're now depending on the election cycle and who's in charge, doing well in that department or not. It's a having people come into this country and work is a huge economic stimulus to manufacturing, to the cost of labor, to building homes to a new community, et cetera. Like, where do you see all this going and high level? What do we need to start thinking about and tweaking? Because it's not working. Yeah, I agree. And gosh, I, we can spend hours talking about that. But I do agree. Look, we are a nation of immigrants. And for me, like I am the American dream. I firm and I love this country. I absolutely love this country. And I firmly believe there is no better country than the country we live in today. because. Somebody like me could not have risen up in a different country. And I, and I believe that. Now, it's not without its flaws, but I'm just pragmatic. At the end of the day, I don't think anybody's going to dispute that we want to welcome people who are going to be value adds and contribute 
And so getting away from the politics and just looking at the pure economics, supply and demand and what we want and as consumers. And, I, you know, I just think we should really look at that problem from an economic perspective and not necessarily with the slant towards you name it. Right. Anti-immigration or, you know, or from a perspective of just scarcity of resources, you know, because it's just not we've got we're plentiful. There's plenty of space. There's plenty of options for for us to work out through and have people come who want to come here for the right reasons and be of value add and provide those opportunities. It's funny and it's so ironic that, you know, on the one hand, you have your help wanted sign with the keep out. Right. Okay. How do we reconcile that? Right. So at some point, pragmatism and economics, I think, is is a way to view that. Well, it, it, along those lines, and I, I totally agree with you with the help wanted keep out. The, the people that are freely walking by that sign that should be taking that job are too lazy to do the job anyway. I mean, they're looking for a handout. So there's a whole nother problem and a suck on the system. They're not willing to do the work. They're willing to take a government subsidy and hold their hand out and cry, life's been tough for me. Well, you were born here. It's not nearly as tough for you as it is for others trying to get here. So along those lines, if we had a better immigration process, meaning a true path to citizenship, if you follow this, without all the pitfalls and the god-awfulness of a bunch of people being housed at the border and not processed correctly. Like, is that a government problem? Meaning if we privatize that process, would it work better? Or how do we alleviate the bottleneck and make it a process where part of this is that the other countries have to agree to the process and not just say, head north, my friend. But how do we make that a an actual process that works. Yeah. Well, first, I don't think that we could do it in isolation. At the end of the day, we can't ignore, right, our neighbors, both to the south and to the north. Right. And so even from a macro global macro perspective is that those countries have to be willing participants to do their share and pony up, whatever that is. Right. I mean, policy is one thing, but really helping our neighbors have better systems, one. And then here, I'll privatize it. I don't, you know, again, I don't know. I think economics should drive some of that stuff and industry should drive some of that stuff, right? Governments are really good at doing some things and really bad at doing some other things. And so I think at this point, why not, why not have a social experience? Why don't we have more of a private enterprise approach to those needs, mm-hmm. right? And then you have people, well, there's plenty of people here in the U.S. who can do that job. Okay, well, it's fine. I mean, it, the, the jobs have been open, so why are positions getting filled. Right. Right. So obviously, you know, it's such a complicated issue where it's not in a vacuum and there's so many levers that affect once you start pulling other ones, but at least recognizing or even admitting just, yeah, we do need uh, people immigrating. We need, we need great people immigrating into this country. We're willing to work hard who are willing to follow the rules. Right. Because at the end of the day, we're, I don't care who you are. I don't care what station you're from how you grew up. We all want A, to feel belonging. We all want an opportunity, right? And those who want other, you know, want to suck the system, you you can ferret those people out pretty quickly, right? But there's nothing wrong with the risk reward concept that this country's love isn't based on, right? And and again, maybe it's too simplistic, but but that's how I view it. I totally agree. So as you have success in college or in high school, you realize, okay, I want to 
keep going on this educational process. How'd you pick college? How'd you pick law school? So college was interesting because for me, it was so at that time I did, I was able to finish my junior year in high school in California. And at that point, my parents had decided they were the only ones to leave their entire family, come to Texas to stop working in the field. My dad had a cousin. He's like, you know, we can move to Texas, Fort Worth. I've got a cousin. We don't have to work the fields anymore. So they did that. They allowed me to finish my junior year and I finished my senior year in Pasquale High School. So completely, I mean, different. I mean, you asked me what I'm still bitter about in life was leaving that to finish. I love Pasquale High School, however, was not the high school that I was going to for the last three years. That experience I get here and it's a huge culture shock for me coming from Central California to Fort Worth, Texas, because I get here and I'm, you know, I'm going to Pascal and all of a sudden my, you know, 3.9 GPA entering senior rank number three, I'm not even top half of Pascal because it turns out they have like this crazy 5.0 scale. And I'm like, all right, this sucks. What what just happened? So I was bitter. And then the people that I, that I thought, as I, because my world was so small. I thought everybody that was Hispanic was Mexican and spoke Spanish, literally. I mean, I, that was my world. So I come to Fort Worth and I'm engaging and I'm like, oh, you're, you speak Spanish. No, I don't. I'm like, oh, okay, but you're Mexican. Uh, no, I'm Texan. And I'm like, oh, what is this guy? Like, I, where am I? <laughs> it was just completely a huge culture shock. So I was very bitter that senior year. I didn't do anything except go to class and work. And that's when I started working at the pawn shop. And I started at a fast food place, Texas Fried Chicken, doing chicken. So that's what I did in my senior year. I just worked and went to class. And I said, I can't wait to get the heck out of here. I'm going far, far, far away. So that summer before is when I did that Upward Bound program at UCLA. I had knew I had all these vouchers and then just started doing some research in the library about business schools, small, and I wanted it to go away. So by the time college decisions came, I had a really nice opportunity with Bentley University, which is where I went, and and then UC Berkeley, which was in California. And for me, it was like, okay, anywhere but California or Texas, and I've got this opportunity. So I'm like, I'm out. I'm out. And I went. And so that was also a very first lesson in uh, humility because, mm. you know, <laughs> God has a sense of humor and he he kind of brought me to my knees with, uh, with, with that experience because I picked Bentley not knowing where it really was, nothing about it. So once I finished high school, my dad tried to bribe me, by the way. He said, don't go, don't go away to college. I'll buy you a car, stay here. And I was like, uh, hell no. I got out. Like, I don't know, but I'm a badass. I just got the scholarship and I'm going to Bentley. Like, peace out. So they take me to the airport, my mom and my dad. And at that time, you could still go all the way to the gate. I've got two suitcases that I packed. I packed a suitcase full of books and a suitcase clothes. So I remember my dad giving me money, $50, like here's $50. And I'm like, sweet. Thanks, dad. Right. I'm on the plane. I'm like, bye. I'm out. And I'm on the flight and I'm sitting to this gentleman. And about an hour into the flight, we strike up a conversation and he's like, oh, so where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to Bentley. He's like, oh, great. He's like, well, I go to BC. I'm like, okay, cool. And he's like, well, have you been to Boston before? I'm like, no. I'm like, I the idea of college business, I don't even know what that was. Like nothing. Okay. Nothing. So he says, okay, you don't get cold here. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> okay. What do you mean it gets cold? Uh-huh. He said, no, it gets like cold and we get snow. And I said, hmm. 
okay. And he's like, you have to buy a down jacket. I'm like, a what? He's like, a down jacket. I didn't even know what a down coat was, like nothing. So I'm like, okay, all right. So a little bit different. All right, it's going to get cold. Anyway, so that's like the first inkling when I started feeling, I'm like, all right, here we go. So we land, the plane lands. I get my luggage and I figure out to get in this big line in the taxi to get a taxi to go to Bentley University, which is in Waltham, which is a suburb of Boston. So I get in the in the taxi line. I get in the taxi and I tell the ta- the cab driver, hey, Bentley University, Waverly Hall. I remember that. He's like, <laughs> OK. And I get in and I'm looking around and I'm looking, you know, Boston driving down the Charles River. It's beautiful. And I'm like, I'm a badass. I'm in Boston. I'm going to college. And then the car keeps going. And I'm looking at the tax meter or whatever, the meter in the taxi cab. And it's like 24 and 35 and 42 and 48. And I'm like $54 by the time we get to Waverly Hall. And I'm like, oh my God. So I gave him the figure. I didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. I gave him $50. And I said, I'm so sorry. This is like all I have. And he took it. Whatever. I got my suitcases. The first one in my dorm room. I'm like, okay, great. Triple. So I pick out my bed and I unpack my books and put my clothes in drawers, right? And then I'm looking out the window and I, and I see like all these people with sheets and towels and mini fridges and a radio and pillows and toilet. And I'm like, where's my stuff? Mm-hmm. Like, I thought this stuff was going to be provided. I mean, I literally, you talk about like being so naive and so ignorant. So again, reality sits and I'm like, holy shit. Like, I had no idea or what to bring. I had no idea. I thought this stuff would just was just going to be provided, right? Because I've got a scholarship. I'm like, surely, right? So I leave the dorm room and I immediately, like, just start crying. Like, I'm in this, this stoop and I, and I start crying. And this girl comes up to me. She sits down. She's like, oh, she's like, are you crying because you miss your boyfriend? And I look at her. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm crying because I didn't know I had to bring any of this stuff. Like, I had no idea. So she's still my friend to this day, by the way, Jessica. So she's like, don't worry. I'll let you borrow some towels and some sheets and everything. But that was a very humbling experience that, you know, I was like, you know, here I think in all my arrogance and, and all of a sudden, yeah, no, not so fast. So that's how my college experience started. When you looked out the window, too, and saw what we're your peers walking around with these things that you should have to start your first day of college. They probably, a lot of them had their parents with them. Oh, everybody had their family with them. And I think, and I want to get into the, the law school experience too, but like to me that based on knowing you for well over a decade, that does really define, I think, how you approach life. Like when you see something, or there's a barrier or whatever it is. It's not, I'm going to research the shit out of this before I go do it. I'm going to jump right in and figure it out. And I got street smarts and I believe in myself. And yeah, maybe I will have a moment where I need to cry and kind of go, <laughs> I may, I I may have bit off a little more than I can chew, but you figure it out. And I think that's what I've, I've took a note here that you actually worked at a pawn shop in high school. And then that has been a big part of your career before moving to Texas Capital Bank, which we'll get to in a second. But to me, that story just completely defines the way that you approach life, like challenge, issue, wall, bust it down, figure it out. So well said. That's right. So the winter got cold. Did you get a down I did. jacket? I got a down coat and a pea coat, right? Okay. Yep. So I did. Yeah. You know that it was just, a, you're right about that. It was rude awakening, but you know, the other sort of seminal moment too was the next day I go get my books and I have my schedule and 
get my books and I get to the cash register and she's like, it's $600. And I'm like, books aren't provided either. It's like, no, you got to pay for your own books. I said, but but I think I have a scholarship. Like, that doesn't matter. You have to pay for your books. So learning how to met like the credit card companies were right there. So mm-hmm. I just said, all right, I guess I'm going to go get a credit card so I can pay for these books and get my books. But it's, yeah, you're right. I think for me, it was, it's always been, I don't research, like, I think I have an idea. And at the end of the day, it's like, you know what? I'm going to figure it out. Yep. But it's come, it's, yeah, it's been humbling. Lots of humbling moments for sure. But your mind works at that speed that you can keep, like, you don't have to have all the answers day one in order to feel comfortable with that next thing. It's like, here's the opportunity or here's the challenge. I'm just going to bust through and ask a bunch of questions and figure it out, which is an unbelievable trait because most people are not, they may think that they can do that, but when it gets down to it, like you're standing on the edge, like, hey, am I going to jump and do, they're like, oh no, <laughs> I'm scared of heights. I'm not going to do this. So you were there four years. Mm-hmm. Five years. Five years. Mm-hmm. I stayed. They were very, the university was great. They gave me a, a scholarship to finish my MBA as well. So I was a total of five years there at Bentley. So I got my BA and MBA. Wow. And then you decided you needed more education. Well, so no. So again, again, my decision to go to Bentley was very pragmatic. It was like, I want to learn about business. I want to be in a different environment and just, you know, do something different. But while there, you know, I did get a great appreciation for travel, number one, because, you know, Boston's located in a great location to go see Europe. But then the exposure to the work that they did, which is at the time they were like the top business school in the country, like but behind Babson. So I like I knew I wanted to hold down more finance skills and the accounting skills. And so I did. I worked in a, in a, in a small company, software company in their accounting department. And then after that, I'm like, you know, I want to kind of continue this. So when I graduated. I decided to go to Southern California and uh, work in accounting and finance and just, you know, see, all right, I'll give California another shot. Southern California this time. So I was, I, I was there. I, I worked for the city of Santa Monica, city of Culver City in their accounting department. Great. I mean, great people to work with. I just hated, I hated Southern California. I hated the traffic. I hated that everything was so expensive. Although grateful because I did get to buy my first house while I was in California, which gave me a nice start. But I was getting to the point where I was doing what I was doing, doing great at it, excelling, and then looking around and having like my coworkers been working there for 30, 40 years. That was, you know, that was a retirement. And I was like, okay, I could kind of get used to this sort of 480 schedule, kind of cool. And I was getting to be complacent. So for me, like I always knew I was going to go to law school. I just knew it was just timing. And so I just, at that point, it was that moment, like I could ride this out, be a city employee, did the whole math and lived, you know, pretty comfortable life. Or I just screw it. I'm going to law school. Can change again, just completely. And so I just called my mom. I thought, all right, mom, I said, I am going back to Texas. And I said, but only if I get into SMU law. That's the only law school I'm applying to. And if I get in, then I'm moving back, right? So it's like, I'm moving back on my own terms. So I did. I applied to SMU. They gave me a nice scholarship and I got in. I left California and I was out. But it was, again, feeling just comfortable and complacent. And that to me said my kryptonite. I knew it was time to move on because it's like, mm, I think it's it's time. So that's how I ended up back in Fort Worth, back in Texas. And I came back in 2004 and have been here ever since. I mean, again, who only applies to one law school? <laughs> it's just incredible to me. <laughs> That attitude, you know, if more people had that in life, you know, they would make decisions quicker, probably figure it out faster. And, and either it works out or it doesn't, but you're not, you know, analysis or paralysis by analysis. Yeah. So 
No, I, yeah, so I did that. And so, <laughs> uh, so when, again, when I moved here, I bought a house and my real estate agent says, okay, so now you're here, you're going to go to law school. And I said, yeah, I said, I'm going to go to SMU that, you know, I'm doing the evening program. And I said, I want a job, obviously, and because I, I need to work. And I said, I could either, I'm sure I can get a great job at some company doing accounting or finance. I said, or I could go to just the firm, law firm, and just, you know, learn. And I said, do you, do you know any good lawyers? And she's like, well, actually, yeah, one of the best litigation firms is this law firm in, in Arlington, Texas. And, you know, just, you know, I can make an introduction. I'm like, super great. Like, make the introduction. So Holly Coaster was the name she calls. And while I was there with her and he says, yeah, we'll just, you know, just have her come on by whenever she has time and I'll talk to her. So immediately the next day, like I'm in the offices and I get there really early and the receptionist is looking at me. She's like, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm here to see so-and-so. Uh, was he expecting you again? Super naive. Okay. Because right. I never, wa- I had never even before walked in the law firm in an office before. Right. I just, hey, he told me to stop by. So I said, no, I just, he just told me that I could stop by. And so I'm here. They made me wait. I'm like, like four hours. And I'm still there because, you know, I'm like, I'm here. And so I finally go into the the office partner's office and you know he starts asking me questions and it was all i didn't know what a deposition was but Mm -hmm. i know now but it was almost deposition like questions right and so you know in the end he's like so what you know so what can i do for you and i'm like well i'm wondering if i can just work for your law firm right i just got into smu law school and he's like yeah no we're not really hiring and i'm like hmm okay i said well you know if something changes please let me know and at that point one of the other partners had walked into the office and he introduces me. And then, you know, I said, talking to him and he's like, well, come to my office. And then an hour later, I had a job. So I literally walked in, got rejected, got redirected and got myself hired. And I'm like, score. And I was there for five years. Mm-hmm. Super grateful for for that experience. And so that was, so I was working full time, went to law school, had my first son first year in law school. So it was just one of that period where I just a blur. But yeah, again, one of those moments where I was completely naive. I had no idea. I just, hey, no, that's what I need to do. And that's where I need to go. I'm going to go. Let's see what happens. So I think that's one of the things that that most people, it's their undoing at times, is the ability to manage the chaos, right? So when you started realizing that you've got law school, which is not easy, SMU's law school is definitely not easy. Now you've got this job. Now you're a mom. Like, how did you strategically compartmentalize where you needed to focus your attention, but give it all enough where the the ball stayed in the air? Yeah. So I think people underestimate just human capacity and Mm -hmm. human potential and think we're so capable of, of so much. And for me, it was just, look, this is a punch list of my life at the moment. I know I have to do well in law school. I got to work because I need to make money and I want a job after law school. And oh, by the way, yeah, I have this little human now that I'm responsible for that I also have to kind of pay attention to. So this is one of those things where you just, you know, where humans are adaptable to anything and you just head down and you just do it. Uh, You know, it just, again, I think I probably averaged about four hours of sleep for like four years. (laughs) <laughs> but you do what you have to yep. do. It's that just ruthless determination. And it's like, this is just another thing that I got to get through to get to where I want to be. Yeah. It's just not losing sight of that. So it was post 
SMU, but you were still, I believe, at this law firm when we first met. Because I kind of remember you talking, unless there was another law firm. There was firm another law firm in between. So in I was between. there at that law firm for okay. five years. And then I think when you and I did the leadership crime, I was already at the second law firm where I was doing. But it was in Arlington as well. It right? was in Fort Worth. Okay. This one okay. was, yeah, this one is Fort Worth. Mm hmm. And then not too long after that, I you know, opened the paper and you are general counsel for, you started at First Cash before the merger with Cash America or the That's other way right. around? Yeah. yeah. So I started with First Cash in 2011. That's when I started with First Cash. And that was also very serendipitous because First Cash was a client of mine while I was at the Arlington Law Firm. Got it. And the reason they were a client is because I was the only bilingual bicultural attorney. And at the time, they had a really juicy breach of fiduciary case with their chief operations officer, and it's public, that, you know, he decided to open up some competing pawn shops at the same time that First Cash was opening pawn shops. So I naturally, I mean, being native and knowing the language and being familiar with the documents, great. I was a catbird suite with this lawsuit. And so I got to know the CEO at the time, and Rick Bustle was the CFO at the time, really well. And then just, I thought that was my first lesson actually in like true business in, in corporate America, because we had such a great case. And I was like, well, we're going to win and the trial and this. And and then, you know, all of a sudden they're like, well, no, we can make a deal here with, and I'm like, but we can win a lawsuit. And he's like, but we can make a deal. I'm like, I get you. All right. You know, which first lesson is from, I guess, for being a good lawyer is, you know, looking at everything as a business decision, which is was. And it was hard built to swallow, right? Because it's like, we've got this good case. So anyway, so fast forward years later, I run into him when I'm at the other law firm and he says, hey, you know, we actually probably need some legal help. We don't have a legal department. Would you consider working for First Cash? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. And so at the time, they really wanted to expand into Mexico and Latin America. And so for me, it was another great, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I'm like, that sounds like fun. Okay. That hasn't been done before. Let's do it. And so I was there for over 10 years. It was a great ride. If, if being at the law firms taught me that I could punch above my weight, my experience at first cash really, I mean, taught me that, and I learned how to be a really good corporate athlete. And what that means is... You know, it's just shedding sort of being just a lawyer and really looking at everything from a holistic perspective and actually having a seat at the table. So that forever grateful for that experience. And talk about that Central American expansion, because it's an astronomical number that you guys did down there. Give us some stats so, and so, numbers. So just that. to give you some perspective, when I first joined First Cash, they were in a handful of states in the United States. I mean, they were publicly traded, but only in a handful of states in the United States and only in a handful of states in Mexico. So I think combined, and they're all company-owned stores, probably around 350, maybe 400 brick-and-mortar pawn shops. And their strategy up to then was organic growth, right? Building the De Novo stores and maybe having a couple of acquisitions here and there because the pawn industry is very fragmented. Even today, 96% is fragmented. So very hard to locate opportunities. So the strategy was we want to really grow Mexico and Latin America. And how do we do that? And we had a really good team. And so again, I think for me, you know, being really helpful in identifying opportunities and resources and being able to cut through a lot of the red tape and a lot of BS and understanding the cultural norms and helping, you know, even negotiate things and price. It was just, it was great. And so when all is said and done, by the time I left, it would, you know, first cash was at 
whatever, call it 400 stores to over 3,000 stores in that time span when we started maybe with about five, 6,000 employees to 23,000 employees. So you think about all that undertaking and not only canvassing and really breaking ground in every single state in the country of Mexico, but Colombia, El Salvador, Guatemala. So that was a great ride. It was really, you know, I'm super proud of that and super proud of the, the team that I helped build there and that are still there, frankly, top notch. So as we bridge into current state, and I want to make sure we've got plenty of time to dive into this unbelievable turnaround story that you're such a big part of at Texas Capital Bank. A couple of things. One, what did you learn at First Cash, Cash America, the whole merger? Like, Give me like top two or three things that you garnished from that experience that you've taken and implemented at Texas Capital Bank. Because I think a lot of people go do another job and that's just a part of their career and that's great. But we missed that back to like what we were talking about in our 30s, that reflection of like, okay, this helped me now do this next thing. Gosh, good question. So I think maybe two or three things, I think if you had to pick it first, Cash, number one is dealing with crisis and chaos. Because when you are in such high growth in different countries, there's so much shit that you have to deal with. And there has to be a good outcome, right? Because there are serious consequences. So really learning to work within crisis and chaos. Mm -hmm. I think probably the second thing is learning and knowing the importance of just talent and really good people. So that is what I took from First Cash that has helped now with my new role, which, you know, which is just with Texas Capital Bank. So much what we've done at the bank the last two years has involved like extreme growth, a lot of chaos, and just, you know, having a lot of people coalesce to execute. And it's, yeah, it's been a lot of work. So those are the two things I think that have helped me. No, that's huge. So before we jump into me receiving a very fortuitous phone call before you made your move to Texas Capital Bank. And this is going to be a hard one because I know you really well, but tell me something that nobody knows about you. Gosh, a lot of people know. I don't I don't know what, I don't even know how to answer that. <laughs> that nobody knows. I'm not, you know, I think I'm an open book yeah. for, for all intents and purposes. No, I don't, I don't know that I, I, I can answer that. Like a little nugget, something that, Maybe it's a process that you have in the morning to get your mind right, or the way that you think about your kids right before you go to bed, or just some internal Anna-only process that just kind of keeps the wheels going. Because you and I run at a very hard pace, and it's hard to wake up every day and say, unless I'm run over by a bus, today is going to be a good day, mm -hmm. and I'm going to will it to be a good day. So maybe if that's helpful at all, some kind of internal on a process that's just unique to you? I don't know if it's unique to me, but every like every, every morning I wake up with just taking stock of gratitude yeah. and recognizing, hey, no matter what the day is going to, I can handle it. And I think you and I have talked about this. Yeah. It's not, there aren't any bad days or hard days. And so every morning I do take stock of all because it's easy to forget and lose sight about that. Look, I pray... As though, you know, everything depends on God and work like it depends on me, mm -hmm. right? But I just really taking stock and just being grateful for it all. And that's every morning. 
And that's so little, but that's so huge. I mean, that does set the tone of your day. Even at Texas Capital, I remember just talking to Rob and they were complaining or something. I'm like, what are y'all complaining about? I'm like, we are working in air-conditioned buildings. We get to come to these beautiful settings. And everybody's looking like, okay, right? So it's like, let's be grateful. Gratitude. And it's just a lot of people. And I've, you know, which is one of my pet peeves too, is feel entitled to just circumstances and situations. And so I've just always had a really good perspective of that. And I just, I work really hard to never lose sight of that. And that's really powerful because we can get so wrapped up in the minutia of what we do and how hard it is and the grind and the time away from family. I just got back from a leadership get together of several of the presidents inside Lockton. And we were kind of talking about this same thing. Like we hear from all of our associates and, and we feel it too, how difficult the insurance market is that we're in now. And you know, how capacity is shrunk and emerging risks are kicking our butt because it changes all the time, like all the the hardness of what we do. And then it was like, whoa, time out. Like, what do we really do? Why are we in this business? It's, it's to meet people, create relationships, show like show value propositions. And to your point, not on a labor camp, like we are incredibly blessed. Now we've worked really yeah, hard to have the jobs yes. that we do, but to complain about how hard it is, is just a complete waste of time because it's really not that hard. Right. If you think about it and you wake up every morning, have that little gratitude moment. You know, we have talked about that. Mine is no bad days, no bad days, mm -hmm. no bad days. And then it's kind of hard to have a bad day. The other thing you surprised me with a couple of weeks ago when we were talking, and it's actually something we've been embracing culturally inside our firm is just the word love. Mm -hmm. Like We don't say that. We say that at home, but we don't say that in the work environment. And you and I had gotten through a, a strategy discussion. There were some difficult decisions that we needed to make. And you just said, Michael, I love you. And like to me, that meant so much to me because it transcended the work relationship that we have. And like that has to come first. Businesses have to make decisions. You have big decisions to make at the bank. But just hearing that, I think the world needs more of like the caring part and not so much just dollars and cents because yeah. we're in the human business. So you can't be a bank without a bunch of employees. I can't be a insurance brokerage firm without our associates. And so letting them know that there's this human component right. and you really care is huge. So I just wanted to say thank, thank you. you and that. you know, even within my own team, you know, I've told like, man, I love you or Colin. For me, like, I never want to be at a place, number one, where I can't be my full authentic self, first and foremost. Number two, I never want to be in a place where I'm just doing my job and it's that and it's transactional. So I was having this exact conversation with one of my teammates and I said, look, I genuinely care about you. I, I love people. I'm interested in people. And so I'm going to be just in your grill. And if you want the respect of the team, like there has got to be a personal component to that. And if you think it's just coming in in business and you're at the wrong team, you're at the wrong place because it's not how I operate because there's we have so much more to give than just, you know, being transactional. And so, you know, last few years, too, I've been really intentional about people, mm -hmm. how I spend my time and my words. And I wasn't like all that. I was, you know, just sort of, hey, grind and just get this work done. And then 
you know, wasn't probably, I don't know, maybe about four, three years ago. I just, you know, I don't do New Year's resolution, (laughs) but that particular year, I just said, you know, I said, I am not ever going to complain about something unless I'm going to do something about it. I am going to reach out to people who have had such an impact in my life, whether they know it or not. And I'm just going to be grateful. And so I really, and that has just made a huge difference, not only in my life, but also in the quality of my relationships, right? Just being, being a lot more intentional. Well, I've always thought you were amazing, but it, it was really awesome to see that as I got to know the other executives over the last two years at Texas Capital Bank, and naturally we would talk about our relationship. And I said, well, what do you tell me what you think about on it? And they all saw the same things. It was just high integrity, unbelievable work ethic, definitely a bulldog up in your grill that's going to let you know exactly where you stand. But like, that's why we hired her. That's why you were the perfect person at the perfect time to join this team. And I've gotten to know them really, really well. It's just like, I get to watch a lot of companies and what they do and watching what you all have done in the last two years to truly plant the flag as the only full service financial institution in Texas offering every banking product solution strategy under the sun in an environment, especially the last two quarters where you've got regional bank failures all over the place. And your stock price is doing fantastic. The ETF has been launched. The turnaround is, I wouldn't say it's complete, but it's almost full circle, right? The build is complete. Turnaround is getting there, yeah. It's just, they're so lucky to have you, A. And B, it's been a hell of a ride to be a part of because it's working. And you're delivering to your clients. You're growing your client base. You're growing your deposits. We talk about this in our company too. You've, you're shedding the non-core pieces of where you're trying to go, which the timing on selling the premium finance piece couldn't have been better, all things being equal. Mm-hmm. And so now that you're a couple of years in to this position, you know, talk about what that's been like and how you've just maintain this core team and this core belief that we don't care what's thrown at us. This is what we're doing. Get out of our way. Here we come. You know, again, I've been so fortunate because I never thought I'd get a similar opportunity like I did in First Cash with growing and being part of the rise. And it's been just fantastic. I think this is so far has been my best favorite professional experience, even though it's been the hardest, precisely because of the type of people we're all rowing in the same direction. They all bring the same intensity, the same level of intellect and give a shit factor, which I love. I don't know if I've said several times, I think I've never been around so many smart, driven people with the point of view since like law school, all in one place. And it's all the time and it's constant. So it is a very particular breed. And I every my favorite part is the people that I work with not only my team, but the executive leadership team. So again, and now we're lapping two years of us doing this together. We are just getting started. Naturally, we're very blessed to recognize good partners, which locked in. It's been a great partner. So, and I know your team understands this, but for us, part of that success is doing all of the little things right consistently. And that matters. I have a whole newfound appreciation for 
the service business because that's what we're in. And I didn't really appreciate that before. And it is so nuanced that, you know, because of all of that, I just I feel like I'm even better because of it. You know, as hard as it's been and, you know, blood, sweat, tears, you name it. It's been great. And I can't imagine being any other place where then I'm at right now with the people that I'm working with. No, I feel the same way. I mean, when you get to join something that, that's got the culture right, or if it's not right, they're going to make it right. They've got clear direction. They hire the best of the best. They do the right thing above profit or anything else. This point in my career to know that absent is something that I can't see change, like I could be working here until I retire is, and I don't know that I'll ever retire. They'll have to kick me out, but is, is such a great feeling. And you, you mentioned kind of a mantra earlier about punching above your weight. You know, I think that's another way that our firms are synonymous. We don't have to be the biggest. We're not trying to be the biggest, but we can get in the ring with anybody and hang all 12 rounds and probably score a knockout. And I just love that synonymous culture that we both have of it's we're here to win, but we're going to win the right way. Right. right. And it's about relationships. We are in a service industry with lots of people trying to commoditize what we do, but it's not a commodity. It's there's a lot of processes behind the scenes that make ultimately what we offer a superior option for those looking for a change. Right. That's right. Well yeah. said. Yeah. So fast forward five years because the last two have been a whirlwind. I don't know that the next five will be as, I don't want to say tumultuous, but it's been pretty tumultuous. Like, what does your position look like? What does the bank look like five years from now? So I think five years from now, the bank looks like bigger, more capabilities and probably having all of the best Texas clients, right? I don't plan on going anywhere. I'll be there as long as Rob will have me. I mentioned that we're just sort of in the toddler stages of where we think we're going to be. And so just super excited to ride that out and to continue to be a part of it. Yeah. So five years from now, I think we'll be doing what we're doing at a bigger scale and then better. Yeah. I have no doubt. Well, it, it's an amazing bank. It's an unbelievable turnaround story. And, you know, anybody looking for an alternative should look no further because it is truly full service and they can do and accomplish and be nimble. Um, like other big banks can on on anything that you need. So and problem solve. Job really. well done. Yeah, thank you. Job well done. So as we come to the conclusion of this amazing time together, and thank you so much for sharing. We always end with the same question, which is is more of a saying and then a question. And the saying is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But then we turn it or I turn it around and say, it's not who you know, but who knows you. So if you think about this podcast and what I've poured my heart into creating, which is these stories that need to be captured and told, and your story is amazing, what do you want people to know about you? And I'll give you kind of some goalposts because that's a big question. Do you want to frame it in what do you want your kids to know about you? What do you want? the people that have had similar upbringings and challenges to know about you? Or what do you want your employees and people that you work at the bank to know about? You pick, but I think frame it in that context if you're okay with that. That is a loaded question. I, you know, I, I think for, we all have a story. Okay. We all have 
shared experiences. And again, I, I don't think who you are, or how you came up or where you're from, I, whatever it is, it's within you. The obstacles are you. Right. And so that's what I would want people to know. That's what I want kids, my kids to know mm-hmm. is I don't care what it is. The solution is it's within you. You have the full potential to figure it out and to do what it is that you want to do. That would be it. And I think even taking it maybe a little step further is what I told my kids when they really wanted to travel with me. And I told them they couldn't do it. They couldn't hack it, <laughs> <laughs> it which at that time it was just again just isolated to traveling you know my three rules now i think for life i think i would be look you're gonna carry it so be careful with your path mm-hmm. right not whatever it is clothes emotions baggage whatever you pack you carry okay so be mindful of what that is number two is no whining right going back to I don't care how long we're walking, what happens, no whining, no complaining, unless you're going to do something about it. Otherwise, just roll with it. Then don't say no to anything, to experiences. Now that, you know, it doesn't mean throw caution to the wind. But, you know, when you just start from a frame of just don't say no and just accept it and embrace it, you know, I think things will be all right. So that's probably it, those three things. Well said by the person that went off to college by themselves with two suitcases, one full of clothes and one full of books. What were the books that were in there? They were old textbooks from like English literature and that you were going to use as reference. I I have no idea. I'm like, oh, this will look cool. I think I'll only read this book. Yeah, I'm telling you. Well, (laughs) Well said. Thank you. Thank you for your story. You must come back. Yeah, maybe. It wasn't as bad. Thank you. It was, it was good. It was good for not, you know, and I'm glad that my first podcast was with you and the climb. So thank you. An honor and a privilege. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again. And we'll see you on the next episode.